Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation 11. Revelation 11. If you're finding your place there, I want to welcome all those who are joining us via our live stream, our uh, DeSoto campus, Reach DeSoto, the venue service right down the hall, and even those who are just at home this weekend for various reasons. We're grateful that you're able to join us via our live stream. I also want to make you aware of something that's in, very important to our hearts, certainly, um, that's coming up this next year in August. We will vote on an amendment to the Kansas Constitution called the Value Them Both Amendment. Um, some of you are very much aware, others of you might not be aware, that um, the Kansas Supreme Court this past year um, set a very dangerous precedent in their decision uh, that basically said in the original Constitution of Kansas, it was afforded to every Kansan the opportunity to have a right to abortion. Uh, and we don't believe that that was the original intention of those uh, who put that together, uh, but certainly they have set this precedent. And, and what it has done is it has eliminated the ban on, uh, certainly set the precedent to do these things, but to eliminate the ban on partial birth and late-term abortions, to eliminate the need for parental consent for minors, and also to pave the way for federally funded abortion in Kansas. Um, we're already seeing that Kansas is quickly becoming, due to this precedent, a safe haven for those who are seeking abortion. And uh, so what has been presented is an amendment to the Constitution that would take us back to previous precedent. I want to be clear about this amendment. Um, it does not eliminate abortion. Uh, I wish it did, but it doesn't. What it does is it takes us back to precedent that was set in this state for 25 years that regulated abortion where you have a ban on partial and late-term abortion. You have a ban on federally funded and you require parental consent of minors. So uh, this is something that's really serious. It's something that we need to pass. And, and uh, you know I don't wade into political issues, but this isn't political. This is moral. This is biblical. We don't believe in the sanctity of human life because of a piece of legislation or a political platform. We don't believe in the sanctity of life because of science, although we believe science very clearly backs up our belief. We believe in the sanctity of life because God has declared that all life is sacred to his heart. It is holy, and we will, as God's people, do all that we can to protect it. So it's time that we as Kansans stood up in this state, and more importantly as Christians, and said, not on my watch. Not here, not in this place. We're not going to let it happen. So this is Sanctity of Life weekend. I think all of you know, but it's important for us to declare this on a regular basis, where we stand very clearly. And uh, so there's going to be a lot of opposition to this. You're going to hear a lot of voices that I believe will seek to deceive you about what this amendment uh, really involves. Uh, what we're going to do as we lead up to the vote is try to inform you as best we can. Um, we've got some folks that are going to come and speak. Um, we've got Brittany Jones from uh, Kansas Family Voice who has been an important part of this and can articulate it better than me. And we're going to have her come and, and share with you more about what this, what this involves. But be praying for this. Now, I, just as we start our service, I want to pray, and um, I know, uh, how many of you today would just say, boy, I got some stuff going on, or somebody in my life I'm pleading for in prayer this morning? Uh, we got a lot of things going on. I know a lot of us, I, I have some people in my life that I'm praying for, very close friends of mine, and uh, just a lot of stuff going on, and, and so I want us just to start with prayer, but I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask Ryan, Ryan, you going to come up here and pray for us? Ryan's coming to pray. Ryan's one of the best prayer warriors I know. 
we get together, we pray every Tuesday. And I'm going to ask Ryan to pray. Guys, you can probably pick this up on my headset mic. So lean right here, buddy. We'll get close. He's going to pray, and then I'm going to pray. Uh, and you pray. Okay. Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your house this morning. What a joy, what a privilege it is to be here. But we thank you overwhelmingly with gratitude that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we can enter into your presence and cry out, Abba, Father. We are studying the temple and we're reminded that we have a great privilege that because Christ and what he's done for us and our faith in him, we've become your children. And children don't have to go through a ritual. They just call out to dad. And that's what we do today in the midst of these circumstances. God, we pray that we as your people who are called by your name will humble ourselves and will pray. And we know that you will hear, hear from heaven and you will hear our, uh, heal our land. And so, God, that is our prayer that as a nation, as your people, God, we would humble ourselves. We would repent of our sins. With humility, we would cry out for you to do a great work today. And we pray that you would protect life. For those that are endorsing this amendment and working hard to see it passed, we pray that you would grant them your favor, that we might protect the unborn. The largest unreached people group in the world is the unborn. And God, we pray that we would protect them so that they might have an opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They bear your image and they're sacred to your heart. Lord, um, pray for those that are sick and hurting this morning. We have many in our lives and our fellowship that are sick and some that are even in the hospital. We pray your hand of healing and protection would be upon them. And God, we pray that you would bless our time in the study of your word this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. Revelation 11. Um, come to Revelation 11. So many of these things as I study them, uh, the, these chapters involve some deep truths, um, some truths that require uh, an in-depth knowledge of God's word. Um, as you know, Revelation kind of pulls together all the loose ends of God's word. And so um, it draws in Ezekiel, it, it draws in Zechariah, it, it draws in Haggai, it draws in Daniel, um, it draws in the Psalms. It, it, it just it pulls them all together. And quite honestly, I'm learning more and more that I'm having to push myself to study things that I don't often study so I can figure out exactly what's going on here in Revelation. But I pray that all these studies in Revelation encourage you to read all of God's Word. Isn't it amazing, the unity of God's Word? You, you, you have all this time and all these people that God inspires to write His Word, and yet the unity of Scripture is overwhelmingly powerful. It's all got one message about the love of God towards sinners and His redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and we see that even here in Revelation I'm also reminded as I study these things the, the, the importance that Israel plays in the working out of God's divine plan that so much of history is dictated upon God's work in this covenantal people called Israel. That God loves them in a special way. They're dear to his heart. He's made promises to them that he will fulfill. But salvation has always been by means of faith in Christ. Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
How is the, those people in the, the Old Testament saved? They're saved in the same way that you and I are, by faith. They prayed and placed their faith in a Messiah who would come. We place our faith in a Messiah who has come. Um, but God loves this people. And even in the tribulation, we see God as he renews his work amongst this covenant people. We see God patiently and consistently drawing them to himself. And so Revelation 11 is really about unbelieving Israel and God calling out to them once again as we draw very close to the final trumpet. In fact, within this chapter, that seventh trumpet, that seventh angel will sound the trumpet and the end, and then we'll have those seven bowls and they're gonna be poured out very, very quickly. And then it's over. And then there'll be one last final battle and the earth will become a parking lot. And uh, God will... Uh, ultimately win in this deal. But he's calling out to the very last minute, he's calling out to his people, trust in Christ. And uh, some of these things that we study, even as I've studied ahead, they're scary, quite honestly. Um, But it should encourage us that God is in control and it should compel us to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the great comfort that we have is that we're not there if we know Christ. I'm telling you, some of this stuff, I'm saying, I don't want to be there for that. Um, but the hope of the Christian is not looking forward to the wrath of God. That, that's not what we long We don't sing hymns about, oh, wrath of God, we rejoice. No, we rejoice in the fact that God loves us and he protects his children from his wrath. But for those who will not receive him, judgment's coming. That's the warning of Revelation. So with that in mind, let's just work our way through this passage this morning We're going to look at these first uh, 14 verses of chapter 11. Look with me in verse 1. It says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. So John is given a measuring rod, and he's asked to measure the temple. This, um, This occurs in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel. Very, very similar to this, in Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel sees a vision of a man who has handed a measuring rod and he measures out the temple. And there's uh, at least four chapters and it gives you this very detailed look into the temple that measures every portion of the temple. It's, it's incredibly detailed. In fact, it's hard to work your way through when you're reading through that portion of Ezekiel. But why does God have that man measure out every portion of that temple? Because God wants Ezekiel and Therefore, the people of Israel to know that that temple is a very real temple. Uh, And it's perfect. It's divine. It's established by God. And we will know it to be the millennial temple that Christ will build. And it will be a memorial to his faithfulness because no, no more sacrifices need to be offered. But here, John is asked. He's given a measuring rod. Not asked, but told to measure out uh, this temple. And it begs the question, does Scripture indicate that there will be a temple during the tribulation period? Does Scripture tell us that there will be a temple in the tribulation? And everybody says, yes, because you were here when we studied Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9 and verses 24 through 27, we don't have time to go there and look at this. I wish we did. But in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, Daniel prophesies about the coming Christ, that Christ would come, the Messiah would come, and he would be cut off, meaning he would be killed. This is beautiful. Does the Old Testament prophesy that Christ would come and he would die? 
Yes, over and over again. It tells us that Christ would come and die. So Daniel says Christ will come and he'll be cut off. And it says that he will have nothing. This is a powerful picture. The death of Christ, he dies. And as he dies, the Roman soldiers are rolling dice for his only possessions. That he died and he had nothing, just as as Daniel said would occur. And then it says that not only would he come and die, but after he had died and he had nothing that Jerusalem would be destroyed and the city would be destroyed by the people of the prince. That's what he says. Now, who is the prince in Daniel? It's Antichrist. Who are the people? It doesn't say that the Antichrist will destroy the city and the temple. It says the people of the prince. We know that Antichrist will rule over a revived Roman empire. It's the Romans. Do we have a time in history when the temple and when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by a group of Romans? Yes, we do. It's called 70 AD. And the Romans came in and they destroyed all the temple and all the city and not one stone was left upon another just as Jesus said would occur. And what happens after that is a time of judgment upon the nation. In fact, Daniel says it this way, to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. So what happens to Israel? What happens to Israel, there's a progression that I try to remember with four Ds. But you have destruction, you have destruction of the city, you have destruction of the temple. And then you have dispersion. So the Israelites are dispersed all over the world. And then you have a darkening, that their hearts are darkened to the gospel. Paul said, even to this day, a veil lies over their eyes so that they cannot see. And then finally, you have displacement, because what does God do is the nation of Israel rejects Christ and the gospel. Who does God turn his attention to? He turns his attention to the church, the Gentile, you and I, and he gathers in a people And he takes this Jewish book and he takes this Jewish savior who's been rejected by the nation and he hands him over to a Gentile people. A people who were not, once were not a people, have now become the people of God. And God grafts us in, amen? So we are grafted in. And then Daniel says, so he says Messiah is going to come, he'll be cut off, he'll have nothing, the city will be destroyed. And then he says, he, in Daniel 9, 27, he, meaning Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Who is the many? The many is Israel. But in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrificing grain offering. So Antichrist is going to come at the beginning of the tribulation, and he's going to make a covenant with Israel. So Israel will not turn to trust in God, but they will turn to Antichrist. They'll make a covenant. It's a seven-year covenant with Antichrist, and he will give them the ability to rebuild that temple. So somehow, some way, it almost seems unimaginable. But by the way, Daniel, by saying that he'll make a covenant with the many, meaning Israel, what does that presuppose? It presupposes that Israel is a nation. Now, you realize prior to 1948, that would have sounded crazy. But they are a nation. And so he prophesied that they would become a nation and that they would make a covenant with Antichrist and he would give them the ability to rebuild that temple. So somehow he's going to kick the Muslims off the temple mount. They will rebuild that temple. And then it says at the middle of the week, that's what he says, so three and a half years in, the Antichrist will go back on his covenant. So he'll renege on his agreement. You know what Antichrist does? He lies. Why? Because he's a liar. That's what he does. So he goes back on that agreement and he will set himself up the temple as God. It's called the abomination of desolation. But he puts a stop to grain offering and sacrifice. If you're going to put a stop to grain offering and sacrifice, what does that mean there has to be on the scene? A temple. So I gave you a whole lot of information to questions you're not even asking to let you know this. 
The Bible tells you that there is a temple in the tribulation. In fact, are there other places that tell us that there's a temple in the tribulation? Yes, there are. In fact, Jesus himself declared it in Matthew 24, verse 15. It says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation. So Christ, and he even says, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet. How about that? Jesus knows Daniel. And standing in the holy place. So even Jesus said the Antichrist would set himself up in the temple in the midst of the tribulation. So Jesus declared there's a tribulational temple. And then also uh, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Paul's writing to a, a Thessalonica church that has been told that they missed the rapture. Uh, they're now living in the midst of the tribulation. And Paul writes to correct those false teachers. And he said, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Apostasy means a turning away from Christ. So what it means is there's going to be a worldwide turning away from Christ and God and the truth of his word. Is that happening today? Yeah. It's coming about just like God said it would. There's apostasy comes first, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed. So he says there's going to be the man of lawlessness, which is Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object, object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the what? In the temple of God. So you've got, you got Daniel, you got Jesus, and you got Paul, all declaring that there's a temple in place during the tribulation. Those are pretty good people to listen to, Daniel, Jesus, and Paul. Now here's the question. You have a temple in the midst of the tribulation, and Daniel is asked to measure that temple. Here's the question. Will the temple measure up? Will it measure up to God's standard? And notice, too, he's not just called to measure the temple, but to measure the people who worship in it. So he's saying, do this temple measure up to God's design? Do these people measure up to God's standard of holiness? And the answer to that question is no. It will not. This is not a good thing. Um, there's a lot of people, and I know they're well-intentioned, but I disagree. There's people who hear about, and there is talk of Israel beginning to gather resources in order that they'll have the opportunity to rebuild the temple if given the opportunity. And there's people who get excited about those things. Quite frankly, I don't get excited about it because I think it grieves the heart of God. Because God's not calling anybody at this point to go back to the worship in the temple. What is God calling people to do? Turn to Christ. Does the New Testament ever give a scripture that tells us don't go back to the law? Don't go back to the temple? See also Hebrews. See also Romans. See also Galatians. God is constantly telling us don't go back to the temple. There's no need. Why? Because the temple has been fulfilled in who? In Jesus Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no need for sacrifices anymore because God's Lamb has come and died for our sins. He's the final sacrifice. There's no need for a mercy seat above the, the Ark of the Covenant because Jesus Christ, as Paul says, is our mercy seat. And now through faith in Jesus Christ, his blood atones for our sins. And God now looks it on us not through the lens of our sin, but through the lens of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, you're my children and you can come into my presence now through faith in Jesus Christ. Is that not good news? That we don't have to go through a temple. We don't have to go through any other person. We can now come into God's presence through faith in Jesus Christ. So the temple is obsolete. It served its purpose. All the shadows, the temple was supposed to point them to the fulfillment, which is Christ. All the symbols, all the shadows of the temple have now been fulfilled in the, in the person of Christ. So this temple will not measure up and these people will not 
measure up. Look in verse 2. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it's been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. The outer court is the court of the Gentiles. Um, this is the area that is the furthest removed from the holy of holies. Uh, this is the place where most of us, if you can't trace your lineage back to Abraham, this is where you and I would have had an opportunity to just get a glimpse of God's glory, to be able to participate in temple worship. Uh, this is also the place you'll remember where the, the Jewish leadership did their money changing. Uh, they turned it into a den of robbers. They were extorting the people. They were selling sacrifices, making money on it. And they didn't really care. Why? Because it was the court of the Gentiles. Those dirty Gentiles are unclean anyway. God ain't going to care if we dirty it up a little bit more. And you remember there was one particular Jew who came along and got a little irritated at their money changing. And you remember what he did? He took a whip and he turned over those tables and he ran them out of there. And he said, you've turned my father's house into a den of robbers. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. For who? For all the nations. Do you know what Christ was saying? You may not care about this part of the tabernacle, but God does. Because while you may not care about those Gentiles, they have a special place in God's heart. And everybody ought to have an opportunity to come and worship and catch a glimpse of God's glory. But this portion of the temple, John is instructed, don't measure, don't mess with it. Why? Because you're not going to need it. The nations are going to trample it all under, not just the court of the Gentiles, but the nations are going to trample under the whole deal. It's all coming down. It doesn't measure up, and it will all be trampled underfoot by the nations. That will occur in the latter three and a half years of the tribulation. But look in verse 3. It says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So God has left here in the midst of unbelieving Israel, God has left these two witnesses. God always, wherever you go, leaves a biblical witness unto himself. People who call men and women away from sin and to turn to true faith in Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins and turn to true worship of God. And we've already seen in chapter 7 the 144,000 that were the beginning of the first fruits, a wave of Israel that will turn to faith in Christ. But will all of Israel turn to faith in Jesus Christ? No, they will not. Um, chapter 11, I believe, is referring to unbelieving Israel. But even here in the midst of unbelieving Israel, God has left witnesses, two people, two individuals that are calling people back to Christ. They are not happy, in other words, because what are they wearing? What does it say in verse 3? That they are clothed in what? Sackcloth. Sackcloth is an indication that they are in mourning. These two witnesses, they're grieving. Why are they grieving? Because their brothers and sisters that are a member of this nation aren't turning to Christ. They're going where? They're going back to law. They're going back to the temple. And so these two witnesses, they're, they're grieved. They're, they're grieved over these people who won't turn to Christ. They're going to turn to the law. A law which was intended to show them the depth of their sin. It was never intended to bring them access to God. And so they're grieved over it. Now, now we don't know the exact identity. Although there are some who believe that this, these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. And we get a picture that, uh, that would indicate that they might be. I don't know for certain. Uh, but look at these descriptors in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Olive trees produced oil that were put in the lampstands. They gave light. Uh, in Zechariah chapter 4, as the nation is trying to rebuild the temple and they're getting discouraged, Zechariah prophesies to encourage them. And he tells them about Zerubbabel the king and Joshua the high priest. And he has a vision 
And they are pictured as the olive trees and the lampstands that Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, were the light of God in the midst of a dark day calling people back to true worship and to rebuild the temple. To follow the heart of God. And so now here we see olive trees and lampstands. These two witnesses. And what are they? They're the light of God in the midst of a dark day as the nation continues to turn back to the temple. And they are the light. The the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And these two men are the light of God pointing people to Christ. You know, what are we called to be in Matthew? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the what? The light of the world. You and I are the olive trees. You and I are the lampstands today. The light of God pointing people back to true worship and faith in Christ. And then we see God's protection in verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm, the, harm them, the fire, uh, fire comes out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Pretty powerful picture. You try to mess with these guys, fire comes out of their mouth and just consumes you. And if you hear that, it should remind you of a story in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, there was a king named... Hazariah, and he got sick, and uh, he sent some men to inquire of Baal. In other words, he sent these men to go talk to an idol about what was going to happen to him. He's sick. He wants to know, am I going to die? Elijah encounters these men as they're going to uh, consult an idol, and he says, why are you going to an idol? Is there not a God in Israel? Why doesn't the king just talk to God? And then Elijah tells these guys, you just go back and tell the king he's going to die, all right? It's done. He's going to die. So they go back. They tell, hey, we encountered this guy who told us that you're going to die. The king says, was he an odd-looking guy with a hairy, with a weird belt? Yeah, that's Elijah. All right, I don't like him. He always prophesies bad things. Go get him. So he sends a detachment of soldiers to go get Elijah, essentially to bring him back and kill him. And uh, they go up to Elijah, and he's up on a mountain. They say, Elijah, if you're a man of God, or Elijah, man of God, come down from your mountain. And Elijah says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down and consume you. Guess what happens? Fire comes down and gets them all. They send another attachment. They're going to have another go at it. Man of God, come down from your hill. If I am a man of God, let fire come down and consume me. What happens to them? Oh, they're consumed too. They finally send a third detachment. The leader of that detachment says, sir, please, don't kill me. Would you mind? Would you be so kind as to accompany me? And God says, this guy's got a little better sense. You can go with him. And he goes, and Elijah prophesies before that king. But the picture here both in Revelation 11 and there in 2 Kings 2, is you don't mess with God's man. When God has his hand on a man, you don't mess with him. And uh, it's not just, I think, it's applicable to all of us men and women today who are God's men and women. Do you understand this, that there is a, as you and I go out to faithfully proclaim God's word in the gospel, there's a divine protection that lies over us until our purposes are finished in this world. Doesn't mean that you're immortal, but it doesn't mean this, you are invincible until your purposes on this earth are finished. Isn't that a good word? Uh, Because these two witnesses, they're not gonna live forever either. They're gonna die. But they didn't die until God was done with them. And as you and I move forward, we have this divine protection on our lives as we seek to be his witnesses and to be his light. And then in verse 6, their power, these have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of of their prophesying. And they have power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Who, Who shut up the skies in the Old Testament? Elijah. He prayed and there was a drought. Um... Who was it that turned the, the, the river into blood and, and caused plagues to come upon the people? Moses. Elijah is representative of what? The prophets. Moses is a representation of what? The law. 
And for this reason, that many people believe that these two individuals are Elijah and Moses. The law and the prophets in the Old Testament were always pointing us to who? I always say it this way. The law and the prophets create a crosshairs that point us to Jesus Christ, one person. And so these two witnesses, they're like Moses and Elijah. In fact, you remember the transfiguration, uh, the inner three, Peter, James, and John, they go up on that mount and they see Christ. God just pulls back the blinders for a little bit and they get to see Christ's glory. And who was there with him? Moses and Elijah. The law and prophets throughout scripture are always pointing you to Christ. And then guess what happens? It goes on a little further because Peter says, let's make three tabernacles. This is cool. Let's make a tabernacle for Peter or for Elijah and Moses and and Jesus. And uh, he didn't have a clue what he was talking about. That's what scripture tells us. He didn't even know what he was talking about. Because remember, Elijah and Moses are not on the same playing field as Jesus. They, they, and so at that moment in the transfiguration, what happens? Moses and Elijah just disappear. They fade off the scene, and there's only one person left, and it's Jesus. Moses and Elijah always point us to Christ. And here these two witnesses are pointing an unbelieving nation back to Christ. Look at verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Remember, when they finished their testimony, when they're done. So they proclaim this message for the first three and a half years. And when they finish, the beast comes out of the abyss. This is the first reference to a beast that we'll have. We will see beast mentioned 36 times beginning here on out through Revelation. So we're going to talk a lot about the beast. But the beast in the Old Testament is a nation with power that has no conscience. Would we not all agree a nation that has incredible power but has no moral compass is a beast? These are the scary parts of Revelation because can we not see that occurring today? I'm just glad we're the United States and nothing like that could ever happen to us, so it's a good thing. Look at verse 8. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which is called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. Their bodies lie in the street of the great city. They lie there in Jerusalem. It's interesting. Jerusalem called Sodom in Egypt. Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt because these people continue in immorality. And it's called Egypt because they persecute the faithful of God. And so these two men are killed and they, their dead bodies lie. I really believe in my heart, I don't know exactly, but I believe their dead bodies lie at Mount Moriah. You remember, that's the place where Abraham took his son. As God said, take him and offer him up to me. And as he's about to strike the child, he sees a ram in the thicket and God provides. It's the same mountain that David will ascend as the nation's being judged for his sin. And David says, take my life. And God says, I'm not going to take your life. You'll be judged, but I'm not going to take your life. And it's on that same mountain that Jesus will ascend And he will die on a cross for our sins. And right here, these two witnesses die at that place testifying to Jesus Christ. Even as they die. And then in verse 9, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. And will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in the tomb. The world hates them. Does the world tend to hate those who witness and testify to the truth of God? 
Jesus said, blessed are you when people persecute you. In this world, you will have trouble. Do not be surprised at the fiery deal among you as if some strange thing were happening to you. They hated Christ. They hate these witnesses. They're going to hate us. And so they hate them. And then what does it say in verse 10? The third angel sounded in a great star. Oh, that's wrong chapter. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So they're happy. Why are they happy? Because these two guys are dead. And these two witnesses have been pronouncing every plague and every judgment that's come upon the earth. And so that now that they're gone, what do they think? It's over. We got rid of them. We finally killed them. What did they think when Jesus, what did the Jewish leadership think when Jesus was crucified on the cross? They think we finally got him. We've stopped the whole deal. We've put that in the past. But guess what? He didn't stay dead. And neither will these two witnesses. Look at what it says. Verse 11, resurrection. But after the, the three and a half days, the breath of life of God came into them and they stood on their feet in great fear. That's a wild understatement. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh yeah, we've won. And then you see the breath of God and they get up on their feet upon those who were watching them. You have great fear. And then verse 12, and they heard a loud voice from heaven say to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. They have a physical resurrection and they have a physical ascension. And then you have the signs of God in verse 13, earthquake and judgment comes on the nation. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified. And gave glory to the God of heaven. So you have a remnant who are turning to believe. But you have many who still will not believe. Does this sound familiar of a man who came and testified to the law of prophets. And said they're now fulfilled in me. And who testified to the truth of God to a nation that would not believe. And they rejected him and they killed him. And they placed him in a tomb. And on the third day he rose. And he was physically resurrected. And then he was physically ascended under the Father. Does that sound familiar? Do you know what I think God is doing right here through these two witnesses? He's reenacting the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. He's saying to the nation, I'm going to give you one more chance to repent and turn to this man who came to die for your sins. Do you see the patience of God in this? That this is his people. He loves them. He desires none should perish. And so to the very last minute, to the very last minute, to the very last, because we're right there. In fact, in verses 14 and 15, that, that seven trumpet's going to sound and the bowls are going to be poured out and it's all going to be over. But right before God pours out those bowls of judgment, at the very last minute, he's still pleading, not just with the nation of Israel, but with the nations that are there, trust in Christ. It's a God who is just and he must punish, but a God who is loving and patient. And to the very last, he's calling men and women to trust in his son, Jesus. I don't know if this is theologically accurate, but the way that I think about it in my mind is that he's a God who does bring judgment. And I know there's so many people, boy, your God seems like a just. But he's a God who brings us, but I picture him who's a God who's almost reluctant to do it. He loves these people so much. You ever had to punish your kids? And you knew, I got to do this. Because if I don't, I'm not a just parent anymore. But boy, you knew the hurt and the pain. And you were reluctant in it. If that's how we feel as sinful 
fathers and mothers, how much more a perfect father who loves the whole world. You know, um, President Truman um, had to make a lot of hard decisions during his presidency. He had to fire uh, the, the country's most popular general. Can you imagine? He had to deal with Korea, but his most difficult decision was when Japan would not surrender. And if you remember, he, he really pled with them to surrender, to wave the white flag, and, and we'll help you rebuild your nation. Just surrender. But they wouldn't, would they? And Truman said, we, we've got something that you... We got something you don't know about. We have something this world has never seen and it will bring about destruction the likes of which you've never known. And we will if you won't. And they wouldn't and he did. And what happened? You had Hiroshima. And Truman got back on the phone again and he pled with them. We have another one. We don't want to. Do you know where the greatest concentration of Christians were in Japan? Nagasaki. And Truman pled with them, don't make us do what we don't want to do, but we have to do. Truman was told, if you continue on in war with the Japanese, you're going to lose a million men. And they wouldn't. And Truman did, and you have Nagasaki. Quite honestly, I can't imagine how Truman went on with life after that. He did what he had to do. He didn't have a choice. But I think it pained him to do it. If that's how an evil, sinful, wicked sinner like you and I, president, felt, how much more do you think God feels? But listen to me. If you will not bend the knee to Christ, there's a day coming. He will do what he doesn't want to do. And this world will know destruction the likes of which it has never seen before. Do we have a hymn? It took a while to find one. But I was thinking about how God just calls those who are his enemies to trust in his son Jesus. And I was reminded of this hymn. E.P. Scott was a missionary to India. He was trying to reach a savage tribe in Enter India, and his friends pleaded with him not to go, but he was undeterred. Can you imagine? He's going into enemy territory, and he knows these people love killing people like him. But do you know what E.P. Scott also knew? He knew if they don't ever hear about Jesus, they won't know. So it may cost me my life. What did that famous missionary Jim Elliott say? He is a no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain that which he can't lose. That was the heart of an E.P. Scott. He went into India, into a savage tribe, and his friend said, don't you dare go in there. You will not come out alive. He went in anyway, and after several days, he encountered a group of warriors. And they pulled their spears, and they had them pointed at his heart, and he expected to die at any moment, and he took took out a violin, and he said a prayer. And he began to sing, all 
Hail the power of Jesus' name. When he reached the words, let every kindred, every tribe, he opened his eyes and there stood the warriors, some in tears, all with their spears lowered. And God opened a door and he spent the next two years evangelizing that same tribe. Any of you here today, maybe prior to faith in Christ, you were enemies of Christ and you didn't care anything about Jesus. You didn't care anything about God. In fact, you were his enemy. And yet at some point or another, you were confronted with the name of Jesus. And your sin was exposed and the glory and the love of Christ who died on a cross for your sins was revealed unto you and you lowered your spear and you trusted in Jesus Christ. And you crowned him Lord of all. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall and crown him. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him. Lord of all, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him. Lord of all, O seed of Israel's chosen race, now ransom from the fall. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him, Lord of all. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him, Lord of all. Let every tongue and every tribe responsive to his call, to him all majesty ascribe and crown him, Lord of all. Oh, that with all the sacred throng we at his feet may fall, we'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. You can bend the knee today and crown him Lord of all voluntarily and know his salvation, but know this one day you will bend the knee. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, your amazing patience that to the very end you're continually extending an invitation to come and to know your salvation and to know your freedom. And I pray if there's anybody here today that has come into this room, maybe they've wandered in here, maybe right now they don't want to be in here, right now they're praying this thing will end and they can go on their way, but maybe, just maybe, you're beginning to work in their heart and by your spirit you're pulling back the blinders so that they can see the beauty of Christ who died for them. Maybe their sin is being exposed and maybe today by means of your spirit they're beginning to realize their only hope is Jesus. I pray that they would know today the Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray that they would know today they don't have to clean themselves up. They could never do enough good work. It's not about joining a church. It's not about good works. It's about receiving a free gift of grace by means of faith. That simply by calling on Jesus' name and asking him to forgive their sins, they can be saved today. I pray that they would do that so that they would know your salvation and not your coming judgment. Lord, for those of us that do know you, Burden our hearts for the lost that are all around us. Give us a heart for the nations. Give us a heart for the neighbor across our street. Knowing what's coming. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.